Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, book lovers. My name is M, and I want to talk about books and cats. So welcome back, book lovers. This is the 25th episode of M's Books and Cats podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm kind of excited that the 25th episode is coming out on the 25th. Um, I don't know why. I just think that's cool. It's also two days before my 40th birthday. Um, so I thought I would talk about giving books as gifts and why I think they're the best gift. So... One of my favorite gifts as a kid uh, that I got every Christmas was Babysitter's Club books. I was completely obsessed with them, um, especially Claudia, and I looked forward to getting those every Christmas. And then, of course, there is also the book that this will now be the third time I have mentioned it in 25 episodes, uh, but my sister did give me What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Hakuri Murakami. And that's one of the best gifts ever, too. Um, I love it when people give me books. It's kind of like getting to know a little piece of them, assuming that it's a book that they love, or it's that they know what I like, um, which is good, too. I remember the time when I first kind of figured out that not everybody would like books as a gift. Um, I was completely obsessed with Hemingway in high school and college. And I tried to give this person one of my favorites, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, it was a nice hardback, and I thought it was a good gift, but it was not super well-received, um, which is pretty obvious Like when I think about it now. Most people are force-fed Hemingway in school, um, and I can't imagine it's super exciting to receive another one of his books as a gift. So I get it. I didn't get it then. Have I mentioned that I am awful at buying gifts for people? Like, unless I know you really, 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 really well. I'm so bad at knowing what people want. I usually go for, like, a gift card because that's the easiest. This week's book, however, would make an excellent gift. The book I'm going to talk about this week is called The Queen of Hearts by Kimmery Martin. So I just want to say that there are going to be some spoilers in this one. I will let you know when they're coming up. I just have to be able to discuss the plot of this book. I can't do it justice by being vague. Um, but I will post in the show notes when in the podcast it is spoiler safe again, because I also really want you to read this, so I don't want to ruin anything. Even if you do hear the spoilers, please read this book. It is beautiful and moving, and it's so much more than the simple plot points that I'm going to go over today. Um, so I chose this book randomly on Amazon. Initially, uh, the plan for February was to try to find all books that were relationship or love-related, in some way Valentine's Day-related. That didn't really end up happening, um, but this book I chose basically because it said Queen of Hearts, and it had a heart in it, and it was about relationships. It was supposed to be for the Valentine's Day episode. That didn't really happen, um, but it's a really good book, so we're going to do it now. 
for my birthday. I probably also bought this because it's the Queen of Hearts and I have that Alice in Wonderland obsession that I talked about in the last episode. Anyway, the story sounded really good. I didn't know much about it, and I wasn't sure if I would like this or not. But it's also medically based, um, which is another thing that fascinates me. I love a good, like, doctor hospital show. So it just, it felt like a perfect fit. And it was. I loved this book, obviously, if I have to talk about it with spoilers. It's written by a doctor, and some of the medical scenes I did feel were maybe, like, a little too detailed, but it also made it really, really realistic. I just got kind of bogged down in some of the the names of tools. I just didn't know what they were, so I kind of skimmed it. I will say that there are definitely some triggering parts in this book if you are sensitive to certain things. Um, the story is set in a hospital and mostly in, like, trauma and ER. So it's bound to have um, some upsetting material. So just know that. Okay, so let's meet Emma and Zadie. Emma and Zadie met in med school, and they became close immediately. Both of them are incredibly smart and on their way to becoming excellent doctors. They have a small group of close friends and are managing rotations at the hospital, schoolwork, and a vibrant social life with the unending energy of young adults. Zadie is petite and pretty, and people are naturally drawn to her, including the doctor that leads her group at the hospital. They call him Dr. X, and everyone is in love with him. Zadie is bowled over by his charm, and they begin a secret relationship. Only Emma knows about it. Emma is tall and too thin and tends to come off as severe or icy. She cares, but it doesn't show on her face. Only Zadie and Emma's boyfriend, Graham, have looked past her frosty exterior and loved the real her. The story jumps back and forth between their time as med students and their lives now as 40-year-old women with children and jobs and husbands. Not Nick or Graham. Not surprising, not everyone stays with their college love. I did. Yay. Um, and just a quick side note, I got one of my birthday presents from my husband today, and it was a cameo from Fortune Feimster, which makes me, like, so unbelievably happy. I didn't expect that. It's a weird gift, but I really like it, and I love Fortune Feimster. She's so funny. Anyway, the story that unfolds tells what happened and both relationships, but there are still a few secrets left to be revealed, even now, decades later. Emma is now a successful surgeon. She has a three-year-old and a happy marriage to a funny, loving man named Wyatt. Zadie has a booming pediatric cardiology practice. Four children, including six-year-old twins and a three-year-old who likes to bite but is the sweetest thing. She is happily married to Drew, who works long hours and often has to travel for his job. Sadie holds down the house. They are still good friends, though their busy schedules make it hard to get together. Life is tranquil even if they do have to intubate a man at the country club pool. Then Nick, a.k.a. Dr. X, gets hired by Emma's hospital, in trauma with her, and everything begins to fall apart. So let me pause here and talk about how much I love the use of hearts and trauma in this book. Their multiple meanings are explored throughout the story in the most beautiful and heart-wrenching way. Heart-wrenching is a good term for this book, actually. This one really hits deep. Okay, so seriously, mega spoilers are coming now. So if you don't want to know anything more about this book and you want to be surprised, uh, go to the time that is specified in the show notes 
and you will skip all of the stuff that you don't want to hear. Okay, so spoiler time. Emma has a secret, something she has never told Sadie. She wanted to, many times over their long friendship, but she knew she would lose her, and she couldn't bear life without Zadie. When Nick reappears, the truth comes out, about the end of his relationship with Zadie and the death of Emma's boyfriend, Graham. There's one other relationship, Nick and Emma. Graham caught them and committed suicide. Nick had to operate on him in the ER after he shot himself in the stomach. Zadie never knew, until Nick returns. She overheard some nurses talking and heard that Nick had a wife and was banging a nurse. When she confronts him, someone, who she believes is his wife, is in the other room, and Zadie ends the relationship. Emma never tells her the truth. When she finally does, it's even worse than Zadie expected. I'm going to leave the very end for you to read. Um, I'm not going to ruin it completely. This book was such a great read. Emotional, moving, and unputdownable. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. So, now that we've gotten to the heart of things, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about Hemingway, but I promise it won't be boring. Be right back. Hey, book lovers. Do you want to read more books while also learning a new language? Prismatext has just what you need. Prismatext books are a brand new way of studying a foreign language. Rather than using flashcards or apps, learners can simply pick up an ebook and start reading. Currently, Prisma textbooks are available in English as a first language, and they target languages including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and Portuguese. Right now, I am engrossed in Wuthering Heights, one of my favorite classics with German words mixed right in. Please follow the link in the show notes to help support the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And if you use code BOOKSANDCATS, you can get 30% off your order. That's all caps. Books, the letter N, CATS. Start learning today while enjoying your favorite classics with Prismatext. Welcome back, book lovers. All right, so I want to talk about Hemingway. Not all of it, because he was prolific, and that was more work than I really want to do right before my birthday. Um, but I did want to talk about him because he was one of my favorite authors when I was in high school and college and really during um, some formative years, especially for my writing style. So I'm going to do some Hemingway highlights. Basically, I have chosen my top three Hemingway books, A Movable Feast, The Sun Also Rises, and A Farewell to Arms. Um, for whom the bell tolls was a very close fourth place, but we'll save that one for some other time. Um, I just want to talk about my favorite parts and maybe some highlights from each book. Because I swear they're not that boring, um, or maybe they are. Big book nerd said it before. Um, so let's start with A Movable Feast, because this one was the one that I was the most obsessed with, and it definitely had the most impact on my writing. Um, I've mentioned it before. It is a beautiful, somewhat, um, you know, nostalgic and romantic portrait of a young author living in poverty in Paris. It appealed to me so much when I was young. Um, of course, now I know that poverty is not beautiful or romantic. Um, I'd say it's pretty stressful. It was so artistically indulgent, and it really made me want to be a writer. 
There's a quote in it where he says, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. And that kind of shaped my early writing. I really took that to heart. And it's still a big part of my writing style. Um, I tend to be more spare, not a ton of excess uh, description or, or flowery words. I feel like I kind of went too far in that direction for a while and maybe made things not descriptive enough. And I have allowed some flowery language to slip back in. But I try to find a balance. And I do try to keep the truth of the sentence the main focus. And I also use that quote every time I start a new project. Because, you know, sometimes you've got an idea, but you're not quite sure of how it begins. And so you just have to think, what is one sentence that can just get it started. And once you have that one, you're good to go. So thanks for that tip, Hemingway. So book number two, The Sun Also Rises. This one, you want to talk about romantic and uh, I would say viewed through the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia, even though it's about severely depressed people with drinking problems. Um, it's also about bullfighting. And Hemingway managed to make bullfighting seem like a beautiful art to a clueless teenager who only thought about beauty and art at the time. I understand now the cruelty of bullfighting, and it definitely takes away from the beauty of it, but he painted it in a very beautiful way as someone who really appreciates bullfighting. Also, his description of being in Spain ignited something in me I have this need to visit Spain that still persists, um, and I will get there someday. It's on the list. And then finally, I want to quickly talk about A Farewell to Arms. Um, I'm sure a lot of people were forced to read this one. It's actually the first Hemingway book that I read, again, forced to in high school, but I was instantly hooked. At the time, I was very interested in the World Wars, and his depiction was so real and emotional and plus it was set in the foreignness of the Italian countryside, which fascinated me. Another place that I really want to visit someday. Of course, as a girl, I was mostly hooked by the romance with the nurse, the pregnancy, the escape across the lake by rowboat, um, and then the brief joy that they had before the absolute emotional destruction at the end. Um, it felt like a revelation at the time. I was still reading a lot of Babysitter's Club and other sorts of, like, young adult-type novels, and this one felt gritty and real and more honest than anything I'd read up to that point. I was reading Stephen King at this point, too, but it just doesn't have... Stephen King never seems like it's real because it has all these, like, fantastic, horrific things. This is essentially just a fictionalized version of real events. Um, and I hadn't read a lot of things like that. So it made a big impact. And that, oh, the scene where they're rowing across the lake is just amazing. And everything after the lake, so well written. Anyway, if there was any doubt before, like I said earlier, I'm a great big book nerd. No shame. Um, I also just got really excited because I saw some ads for a Ken Burns program about Hemingway that's going to be on PBS in April. See, mega nerd. But I am excited for it. 
Um, I don't really have much to talk about with my cats. We had another mouse incident. The little one caught it and was very proud. And then the oldest one got a hold of it and started flinging it all over the place. But then he ate it and he got really, really sick and scared us. So that wasn't fun. Um, he's 13 and he's a pretty healthy, sturdy cat, but he looked real bad. Um, and this is the second cat who has eaten a mouse and then, you know, gotten really scary sick afterwards. So we need to, I don't know, get a hold of those mice faster, I guess. Um, but everybody's good now. They're super healthy. Zeus is actually sitting behind me, sound asleep, but totally fine. So that's all that's going on with my cats. For this quote of the week, I took some quotes from Hemingway again. There are so many good Hemingway quotes. It's like the man spoke in quotes. Um, so I just picked a few that kind of shaped my teens and 20s and also shaped my writing process. Um, the first one is the first draft of anything is shit, which I absolutely love. And it is so true. And it gives you the freedom to just write. Like, if you know that the first draft is just awful and all you have to do is, like, get it out of your brain, then you're not worried about anything and you can just just write, um, which is so freeing. And then if you get hung up on something, you can just be like, just keep going. You don't have to figure it out right now. Just write whatever and go. Um, yeah, this was a big one for me. So the next quote is, when people talk, listen completely. Most people never listen. This is great advice just about observation if you're a writer or an actor, actually. Um, but it also is about being an attentive and caring person. I've always liked to listen to people. I love learning things about other people's lives. And I'm sincerely interested. And I've always been that way. But this quote, when I first saw it... Um, made me take it even more to heart, and I was more conscious about uh, listening. And I'm not always good about it. Sometimes I'm definitely lost in my own stuff, but, you know, I really try. <laughs> I try to listen. Um, the next one is never confuse movement with action. Um, and I like this one because you can move a lot and get nowhere. Action has purpose and uh, planning and a destination in mind. And I like to operate that way if I can. I try. <laughs> um, the next quote, yes, I've got a ton of them, is my aim is to put down on paper what I see and what I feel in the best and simplest way. And so again, this is another quote that I saw that really helped me learn to cut out a lot of the superfluous words. Um, it's fine if you like that kind of writing. It's just not my thing. I kind of discovered that when I read The Grapes of Wrath. I like other Steinbeck books, but that one... You can read every other chapter, because one whole chapter is just description, every other one. Um, that's too much for me. I don't want that much. I don't need the full picture painted. I'll create it in my brain. Anyway, and the last quote that I have here is, write hard and clear about what hurts. And uh, yeah, I, that's all I can say is yeah. It's the best way to do it. So anyway, that is it for this episode of M's Books and Cats podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 25 episodes. I'm so excited and I can't wait to do 25 more and more and more and more. Keep in mind that if you hang out after the music is over, you can hear chapter nine of Heart of the Storm, my weekly writing project. 
And please tell your friends uh, about the podcast if you're enjoying it. I would love to have even more people hear it. And if you haven't had a chance, please review and subscribe to my podcast. It really helps. Um, it helps other people see it. And that would be great. And again, I appreciate all of you for listening. Thank you so much. And until next time, keep reading. Welcome back, book lovers. Are you ready for Chapter 9 of Heart of the Storm? Let's get started. Gemma had no time to process what she was seeing. A beautiful woman, bearing the same poisonous marks as her, leapt over a car and sprinted directly at Gemma. The woman hit her with the force of a charging bull and knocked Gemma off her feet. They landed hard on the muddy embankment behind her, and Gemma soon found herself pinned down with her face in the mud. Kiki was almost blind with rage. The girl's markings, the beautiful swirls of blue dots and wavy lines, had set off something deep inside her, something she tried to always keep hidden. Fear. She had almost forgotten, almost managed to push the memories deep down and live in blissful, manufactured ignorance. The marks on her own skin had faded over the years, and Ke and Kevo's were only slightly darker. Poor Kevo. Her boy had no idea what the markings meant, or what she'd had to give to save them all. She hoped he would never have to know. The girl squirming beneath her in the mud suddenly went still. Kiki sprung to her feet, thinking she had accidentally gone too far. Again. Gemma was on her feet in an instant. The pain in her lungs and chest brought her down again a moment later. She tried to keep her legs moving, but the pain was all-encompassing. She couldn't focus on anything else and dropped to her knees on the sidewalk. Strong hands grabbed her under her arms and lifted her into the air. The pain made her cry out, and any hope she'd had of putting on a tough face was dashed. A large, tattooed arm slid under her legs and cradled her like a baby against the man's broad chest. He was heavily tattooed with blue markings of bolts and swirls. Gemma felt a sudden peace. This imposing man was safe. They bore the same markings. He would know what it meant, and he would know how to save her. Kevo watched his father sprint after his mother. He only hesitated a moment, but his mom was moving fast. He saw the astonished expression on the girl's face just before his mother took her down. When his father returned minutes later, carrying the broken girl in his arms like a child, Kevo had suddenly understood his mother's even more dramatic-than-usual response. The girl's tattoos were fresh. The dark markings matched his own. In his entire two decades of life, Kevo had never seen another like him, and the reactions of others made him wonder what the markings actually meant. People shied away from him when they saw his tattoos. His mother denied this, but he'd noticed at a very young age. Only Harper had dared to befriend him. Her destructive streak drew her to him in school. Kevo wondered how much she remembered— but it seemed like she had no previous memory of him from her early childhood. He was happy to be her rebellion. They had become instantly close. Harper wasn't like most girls in the valley. It wasn't just that her magic was different. It was her very essence, 
She was unafraid, truly free of fear, which was so very rare. Kevo tried to emulate her fearlessness, but he soon realized the other side of Harper's reality. She was fearless because she was ready to die. She told him once that it was the secret to her power. She claimed to have befriended death and made peace with the idea of joining her when the time was right. Her. She said death was a girl, taunting and teasing, and then she was a woman, comforting and cajoling. Harper loved her. Therefore, she was unafraid. It was the most frightening side of Harper's complex personality. Kevo never let her see his fear, but she could feel it. She knew. Luckily, it made her kinder to him. Her soft side was Kevo's favorite, but she rarely made an appearance. It was for the best. Kevo didn't want to fall in love with Harper, and in those softer moments, he believed he could. Kevo laid a mat near the door, casting a quick glance at the hidden mystery box. It was still tucked safely away, and that gave him a little relief. His father laid the broken girl on the mat, and the family stood over her, gazing down in wonder at her freshly marked skin. Their markings were the same. Maz waved a packet under Lottie's nose, and the woman sat up in a panic. Whoa, Maz said, bracing their friend as she swayed. Calm down, Lottie girl. I got you. When Lottie locked eyes with Maz, a huge grin lit up her face. It was quickly followed by a frown, and deep wrinkles appeared in her forehead. Maz, love, I am so happy to see you. There were tears in Lottie's eyes. Maz smiled kindly at their friend. I know you are, my friend, but I also know what my coming means to you and your sisters. You don't have to pretend that you are entirely happy. Lottie sighed and wiped her eyes. She embraced her friend and clung tightly to their slight frame. If it's time, it's time, she said finally. There's nothing I can do about it, and I am very happy to see you, Maz. Lottie turned her bright eyes to Harper and smiled. I'm glad you're still here too, Harper. She reached out and took Harper's hand. She gave it a squeeze. You look just like your mother, and my loyalty carries from mother to daughter. I will do whatever is necessary to help you. Harper felt ill at the woman's touch. Maz was watching her with their eyes narrowed in suspicion. Lottie was grinning and holding tight to her hand, and Harper wanted to rip her hand away from the woman's damp grip. Tell me about my mother, Harper said. Thankfully, Lottie let go of her hand and allowed Maz to help her stand up. She settled herself on the sofa and Maz eased toward the kitchen. I'll make some tea. This could take a while. Maz vanished into another room. Lottie stared after Maz for a moment. Her smile had faded, and she kept her hands clasped tightly in her lap as she spoke. Thea was my friend. Ages ago. Much longer than you know. She and I grew up together in a place very far from here and a different time. Harper was growing impatient with Lottie's dazed and languid tale. The woman was staring off into a place Harper could not see, looking into the past as if it were a movie, and she could just sit back and take it all in. The valley was different back then. Everything was newer, and the magic was a different kind than there is now. Mostly, anyway, she said as she cast a glance in Harper's direction. Things have changed quite a bit in the last couple decades. Not very long at all. Do you know why? Harper shook her head. She had no idea. Lottie tried to smile, but it came off as more of a wince. 
She closed her eyes and pinched the bridge of her nose. Kiki told you nothing. What about your adoptive parents? Again, Harper shook her head. Lottie was staring at her with disdain. She pressed her lips together and shook her head grimly. This is worse than I thought. I don't know if we have time for it all. What was Kiki thinking? The last question was spoken softly, more for herself than Harper. The girl was forgotten momentarily. Lottie was lost in the space between them. The silver-haired woman had left the building. Harper cleared her throat, and Lottie snapped back to reality. Um, I have a question, Harper said hesitantly. Who's Kiki? Mina groaned. She lay beside the tangled remains of the car. It had somehow flipped several times, tossing Mina like laundry. The plush upholstery softened the blows a little, and she was almost unscathed. Almost. She landed with her leg twisted at an odd angle beneath her. She heard a loud pop, and the pain made her pass out. When she awoke, she lay beside the car. One of her guards, the bigger of the two, had dragged her from the car and lay panting on the ground beside her. Blood trickled from a cut on his forehead, but otherwise he seemed okay. Her other guard had not fared as well. He was never one for rules or safety, a quality that Mina appreciated. However, it meant that seatbelts were not part of his repertoire. The dash was much less forgiving than her plush surroundings, and his head had been crushed on the final flip. She felt a moment of regret. He had been her favorite, brutish and violent. He never balked at her requests. He remained stoic, and he carried out her orders with a relish that she really enjoyed. Both men had been by her side for the past twenty years. She had shared just enough of her precious youth magic to keep them rugged and strong, perpetually in their forties. Mina had enjoyed looking at them, too. The remaining man shifted and dared to meet her eye. He had always been a bit impertinent, which made her both angry and excited. His eyes were golden brown and frightened. Mina was caught off guard by the plain fear in his gaze. It only got worse when they heard the giggling. It started out low and far away, but it was growing as they closed in. Her guard's face went white, but he slowly rose to his feet. He would protect her even now. Two of them approached him slowly. They were grinning, and their terrible teeth glittered in the fading afternoon light. The guard was transfixed. He never saw green eyes coming. She dove out of the shrubbery and took out his legs. The other two pounced on him and tore open the tender flesh of his throat. The blonde one made a face, her chin dripping blood, and then spat on the ground. There's magic in him, she said. She turned her bright eyes and widening horrific grin toward Mina. She shook her head slowly. You weren't supposed to share, she crooned, and Mina felt a chill run up her spine. She sat up straighter, though the movement caused so much pain she broke out in a sweat. She lifted her chin and did her best to look threatening, which, given her current situation, was no easy task. That explains the wrinkles, giggled the girl with the scar across her cheek. She was stunning even with the imperfection. Mina had always liked her the best of the three. Until now, anyway. The other two girls joined the laughter. Blood and spittle flew from their garish lips. And as they descended upon Mina, the shrieks of their laughter drowned out the sound of her screams. And that is the end of Chapter 9 of Heart of the Storm, book lovers. Um, I hope you're still enjoying the story. I would love to hear from you. Send me a message on either Instagram, books.cats.pod, 
or books.cats.pod at gmail. Book suggestions, cat stories, whatever you want to send me. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next time.